when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to Harley Finkelstein, president of Shopify. Shopify is one of those companies that makes the modern internet go. It makes software that allows businesses of all sizes to set up online stores. And from there, it can handle everything from shipping orders to financing loans for expansion. The company went public in 2015, and it's been on a tear during the pandemic as online commerce has exploded. This last quarter, it posted revenue of $988 million. That's a 110% increase from last year. But while things are going extremely well right now, I was very curious to talk to Harley about how he sees competitions from the tech giants. A lot of online shopping starts with targeted ads on Facebook, which is building out its own shopping platforms. Facebook and Apple are fighting over how those ads are tracked and served overall. Apple, as of this week, is in the midst of a nasty trial with Epic Games about the cut it takes on digital purchases and iOS apps. And of course, there's Amazon, which dominates online retail. Harley's point to me is that Shopify provides tools for businesses to compete with all of these giants, and that Shopify itself can sometimes act like a giant because it has so many customers to represent. The phrase he used was being the empire versus arming the rebels, which, yeah, that's pretty good. Except for the part where the empire routinely strikes back. But you'll hear him talk about that. Harley is a true believer in entrepreneurs, and that really came through in this conversation. One thing to pay attention to, every time I talk to an executive from a platform company, we wind up talking about moderation issues, and Shopify is no different. The company did ban Donald Trump's store after the January 6th Capitol riots, but Shopify doesn't really fit into the same categories of laws or norms as Twitter or Facebook or other social media platforms. It has a different set of moderation challenges. And it's worth thinking about whether the enterprise software that powers online stores should have to meet the same standards as a TikTok or a YouTube. It's complicated, and you're going to hear Harley and me wrestle with it a little bit. Okay, Harley Finkelstein, president of Shopify. Here we go. Harley Finkelstein, you're the president of Shopify. Welcome to Decoder. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. 
It's a it's a great time to talk to you. You, you just had earnings, which were great. Shopify's doing great as a company. We are also talking at the end of a quarter where every other major tech company announced their earnings. The economy is moving online. Shopify enables a bunch of that to happen. There's also a giant antitrust trial starting off next week about the control Apple has over its platform and all of the transactions you can make on that platform. I feel like you have a lot of insight into a lot of different things that are happening all at once. But let's start at the start. Give people a rundown of what Shopify does and importantly, how you all make money. So the history of the company was about 16 years ago, we wanted to do something very simple. We wanted to sell snowboards on the internet. And back in you know 2005 or so, there were really two ways to sell something online. You either uh, listed it on a marketplace at the time. You know, eBay was a big one. Uh, there were a couple others, but you know, marketplace was really the place you sold something. And the advantages of that, of course, were that it was inexpensive. Uh, it was fairly easy to get up and running. But you were you were pretty much renting customers from that marketplace. You were not really building your own brand. You were not building your own business. The other way, of course, was to spend, I think at the time it was like a couple hundred grand or a million dollars to have one of these large scale enterprise e-commerce builds. You know, you think about like, you know, Oracle had one, and SAP had one, and ATG and Hybris and IBM WebSphere. Uh, they were very expensive and very difficult to operate. So we didn't like either of those options. And so we wrote this piece of software uh, to sell our own snowboards. And within a year, by like 2006 or so, it became obvious that while the snowboard business was a good idea, the software behind the snowboard business was a great idea. So I would say the first, you know, six or seven years or so, we were focused on building the, the best, the easiest, the most scalable way for anyone with a product to build a beautiful, scalable online store. And then around 2012 or so, we started realizing that a lot of our merchants wanted to also sell offline. They either had a brick and mortar store or they wanted to set up a pop-up store or they wanted to, you know, maybe just do an uh, in-person, you know, cash and carry farmer's market type deal. And they came to us and said, hey, can we also use Shopify for that? And so around 2012, we began thinking about this idea of, of really moving from single point solution e-commerce to being an omni-channel solution where you can use us to sell anywhere you want. And uh, we went public around 2015 uh, on New York Stock Exchange and the Toronto Stock Exchange. And that's really when I think most people began to understand Shopify. And I think what also happened around that time beyond just moving from single point solution to being an omnichannel solution was some of those merchants that started on Shopify around their mom's kitchen table got really, really big. Fast forward till today, we have about 1.7 million merchants on Shopify. They make up about 9% of all e-commerce in the US. In the last quarter, they sold more than, you know, $30 billion worth of worth of GMV. And uh, and as we sit here right now, uh, every 28 seconds or so, a brand new entrepreneur gets their first sale on Shopify. GMV is gross market value? Gross merchandise value. So the sales on the platform. We, we did about a 988 million for the quarter in revenue. Our merchants did about 37 billion in, in sales uh, for the quarter. And so how, do you, how does Shopify have money? You take a cut of every transaction, you charge a subscription fee. Where do you take your cut? Yeah, so two sides. Uh, one is on the subscription side, so there's a subscription fee. It starts at twenty nine dollars a month if you're you know just getting started, and goes up to you know two thousand dollars a month for some of the larger merchants. But we also have a payments business. Um, Shopify Payments uh, powers a majority of, particularly in in our main geographies, a majority of transactions. We have a capital business. We've now given up more than two billion dollars of capital to small businesses. We have a fulfillment business and a, and a shipping business. Whereby, uh, actually, this is maybe a good thing to st to pause on for a second. If you were to pretend that Shopify 
Shopify was a retailer, we're not a retailer, but if pretend we were, we would be the second largest online retailer in America after Amazon. The reason I say that is because the second largest online retailer in America, they're entitled to massive economies of scale. And so what we try to do is we try to go to the shipping companies and the capital companies and the payment companies, and we negotiate as if we were the second largest retailer, except instead of keeping those economies of scale for ourselves, we distribute those economies of scale and give those advantages to small businesses. So I want to just pull back for one second, talk about Shopify as is something that you could look at as the second largest online retailer in America. You're up against Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, the rest, right? We're, this last quarter of earnings, these companies all did extraordinarily well. When I started Decoder, the question I would ask everybody is, what are the trends you see in the pandemic? What's going to snap back? No, nothing's snapping back, right? Except maybe we're not going to go work in offices the way that we used to, right? Like the everyone, the economy has moved online in a real way. We are really dependent in particular on a handful of very large companies that I'll pick on Apple because they have a lawsuit. They want to take a cut of every time you push a button on the iPhone. Shopify enables small businesses to compete at that level. You have this economy of scale. You're also partnered with those companies. You're competitive with those companies. What is that relationship like? Where does Shopify slot in? Shopify's entire business model is predicated on if small businesses do well, we do well. If they don't do well, we don't do well. And so the future of retail, in our view, is not going to be online, nor is it going to be offline. It's not going to be on Instagram or TikTok or Facebook or Walmart.com. It's going to be everywhere. And the future of retail, in our view, is going to be about consumer choice. Now, that is very different. I mean, commerce is, is about as old as a, as a construct as, as currency. I mean, we're talking about, you know, since the beginning of time, you've had commerce and you've had currency. But it was always the retailer dictating to the consumer how to purchase. So a great example is go back to, you know, when you were like 10 years old or something and you want to go buy a video game at the video game store. There was a time, you know, it opened at 9 a.m. on a Saturday morning. Once you picked up the game on the shelf, you went into line. You had to use this credit card, but they didn't accept that credit card. But basically, it's, it was always the same. It was always the retailer dictating to the consumer how to purchase. The big shift that is happening that will, that will exist long after the pandemic and, frankly, will be the future retail will be the consumers will simply say, I want to buy however is most convenient for me. And if you're a really forward-thinking merchant like Allbirds, uh, for example, and you know that it's all about consumer choice, then you're going to have a great physical store in San Francisco and New York City and a whole bunch of other places. You're going to have a great online store. You're going to cross-sell on things like Instagram and Facebook. You may also activate the TikTok ad channel because you know that's when you can reach new, new potential customers. But what Shopify's role in all that is that we want to integrate all of it into a centralized retail operating system. So think of a Shopify as the hub of where you run your business day to day when you say you're going to work in the morning, you open up a Shopify admin, you have your inventory, your analytics, your reporting, you do fulfillment from there. One major spoke of that hub will be the online store. Another major spoke may be the offline store, but all the other spokes are going to be with Facebook and Google and Instagram and TikTok and all those companies. And so our partnership with all these companies is predicated on this idea that we want to enable these merchants, these brands to sell wherever they have customers. What is the modern day town square? If you want to sell across a whole variety of age brackets, you need to sell everywhere. And that is really what Shopify's role is. And that's the reason why we partner with all these companies. Yeah, but let me push you on this a little bit. Sure. That's very optimistic. And I, I want to believe that that is true. And certainly I buy some things in stores and I buy some things online and I am notorious for impulse buying things on Instagram, <laughs> as listeners know. But I was looking at some of your stats around like Black Friday this past year. 71% of your purchases were on a phone. 
almost all of those I'm guessing happen in someone else's app, not in a browser. Right. I mean, that's, that's just the nature of phones. And if you're always mediated by a Facebook app or a Amazon app or so, some other kind of platform, if I'm a small business, I'm always worried about them more than I'm necessarily even worried about my business. That I think is the, what you just described there makes the point of why independent retail and commerce is so important. The 71% on the phone that you're talking about during Black Friday, Cyber Monday, uh, that, that week in 2020, the majority of that was actually on the individual online store, not on Instagram, not on, not on okay. any of these other platforms. The majority was direct. That actually, what you're describing is why direct to consumer, I think is being misunderstood. Direct to consumer is being interpreted now as a bit of a, a, of a trend, that this is very trendy right now to buy direct <laughs> from the maker. What happened was in the 1800s, you had all these department stores that popped up and they created this massive intermediation. And what is happening now is the internet has democratized distribution so that you don't need intermediaries anymore. But I think what's happening now is now merchants and brands actually have more control and more independence than they did when they were locked on someone else's marketplace or locked in the shelves of a department store. So actually, I, I, I respectfully disagree that, that it's getting that you're locked on one particular app, because if one of these apps does well and then begins to tax you, you have all these other places you can go because you have more choice as a merchant. So let's walk through an example with, uh, let's call it a snowboard shop. <laughs> that's a, I think that's a, yeah. that's a good one you might be familiar with. Usually I use a flower shop, but we'll, let's do snowboards. So I've got a, a snowboard shop here in Wisconsin. It's very confusing. Not a lot of snowboarding going on here. Especially right now as we talk, it's, yeah. it's probably beautiful outside, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I'm running my snowboard shop. I'm saying I want to grow my business. Two basic pathways I can go. I can say I've got an existing customer base. I'm just going to sell them more stuff. You are interested in snowboards. Now I got gloves too, right? And we're just going to sell more stuff to our existing customer base. Or I can go find new customers and sell them snowboards and increase my volume of snowboard sales. If I'm really good, I might be able to do both things at once, but usually I have to make one of those choices in kind of in sequence. Shopify feels like, okay, we're going to help you find, you're the store, you've got the physical presence. We're going to help you grow the market. We're going to let you sell snowboards in more places online at once. But you've got to go find those people. You've got to do the marketing to do that. Mm -hmm. And that marketing right now, the most cost efficient way of doing that is like Facebook ads. And I look at Facebook. We had Adam Masseri on the show early on in our run. And I said, when are you just going to take my credit card and let me just buy directly from the Instagram ads? Because I'm already a sucker. And he, you know, he winks. And then like a couple weeks ago, like they're moving towards that space. Doesn't that just constrain when you collapse the I've got to do the marketing to now I'm just going to let Instagram handle my payments. Doesn't that constrain what a business can do as it grows? No, I, I think it actually, it, it creates more opportunities. So, so first of all, you probably know this and Adam may have mentioned this, but, but Shopify is the commerce partner for Instagram. So when mm -hmm. you buy off Instagram checkout, uh, in, in many cases, you're buying from a Shopify merchant and the order is being fulfilled directly from the Shopify admin. First thing. Second thing is now we announced uh, three weeks ago that, that ShopPay, which is our accelerated checkout, uh, is now available directly on Facebook and Instagram. So let's say you as a consumer on Instagram and you see this great ad for a snowboard and you decide you want to buy that snowboard, you can do it directly on, on Instagram. It's powered by Shopify. It's a seamless experience. But now the next time you want to actually go and buy a product from that store because you love the brand, it was a great experience, you're probably going to go directly to, you know, snowboardshop.com, whatever it's called, <laughs> right? You're correct in that, yeah, 
the onus is on the merchant to acquire their customer. But there are so many ways to do that right now. Yes, you can buy ads on Facebook or buy ads on Instagram or buy ads on TikTok, but you can also just go and find, um, my wife owns an ice cream shop here in, in Canada, um, and she wanted to basically find a bunch of you know local people that would explore her, her ice cream shop, and so she targeted sort of moms living in our community. She just, went, she just found a bunch of mom groups on Facebook and started going in there and asking them about peanut allergies and asking them about uh, uh, you know lactose intolerance allergies just to get a sense of what they wanted, and now she has this great business of all these moms that are coming and, and, and coming to her ice cream shop. That didn't cost her any money. All she did was had to go and find where those pockets of, of, of target demographic are hanging out. The, the reason, you know, I, I think in, whether it's influencer marketing or content marketing, I know that people sort of roll their eyes when you talk about, well, my business is based on content marketing or my business is based on influencers. But the reason those are so effective is because capital is not the most important ingredient for that. What's important is creativity and, frankly, hustle and and working really, really, really hard to build great content that's very, very compelling. Ten years ago, if you wanted to get people into your physical store, you had to get a billboard, you had to advertise on TV or radio. Money was everything, and so the, those that had more money won. And now it's far more democratic in that there are other ways to acquire customers. I think that's a better model. Do you see Shopify helping people acquire customers? Right. Right now, you've got the shop app, which I do want to talk about. That's kind of your most consumer-facing product. All of the rest of your products are really enabling the business owners to, to operate. But do you see yourself headed in that more consumer direction where you run basically a catalog for lots of independent businesses? No, we, we, we have no plans to be a marketplace. Shop app, for example, which really is a shopping assistant and allows you to do things like accelerate a checkout, allows you to track your packages. There is a tab now where you can find and discover new local businesses, or you can discover black owned businesses, or for you can discover women led owned businesses and stuff. So th there are ways to discover more, uh, more types of businesses. But the idea really there is to create this amazing shopping companion for kind of a modern consumer. We make it really easy for you as a merchant on Shopify to buy ads on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok directly from the Shopify admin. In fact, we will then tell you which are converting better, which products <laughs> are selling best, so you can make better decisions. But in terms of us giving you customers, no, we're not gonna do that. And in fact, that is the difference between a marketplace and having an independent business. While a marketplace may rent you their customers for a period of time, they are never going to be your customers. In fact, in some cases, if the marketplace sees you're making too much money, they may set up a, a white label version of what you're doing. So that's what I mean when I say we are on a different side of the table than a lot of other technology companies or marketplaces because we only do well when these merchants do well independently. So this is really interesting. A couple of weeks ago, uh, as people listened to this, I had Anjali Sood, the CEO of Vimeo. I asked her, why aren't you competing with YouTube? And the answer over and over again was, we're not going to find an audience for the creator. We're going to sell tools that let the creator run a business. You just took a little dig at Amazon there, right? Amazon might make a white label version of your product if you're too successful on Amazon. We're going to stay away from the market acquisition business. We're not going to find you customers. We might help you do it. But we're going to sell you tools that enable you to better sell to those customers. There's a part of me that, as I again, we're in the context of all of these earnings, I'm watching the amount of money flowing through the biggest technology platform companies and the Ben Thompson parlance, you might call them aggregators, who are aggregating all that demand, aggregating all that audience, and then funneling it wherever they want. Is your play that you're, there, there will just be an infinite supply of small businesses that 
haven't been sucked up or killed yet, or that Bonobos or Warby Parker or whatever will become big enough brands to fight back and still use your platform. Cause that's the dynamic that I see. Either you have a huge long tail or you've got a couple of whales that are able to compete. Well, look, if you look at some of our our larger stores, whether it's Fashion Nova or Tommy John Underwear or Kylie Cosmetics or Jeffree Star. So we certainly have some large merchants as well. But I think the more important point that you're that you're making is which which I, which I agree with is that there's going to be a place you go as a consumer if you want to buy stuff that you need. You're if you're out of, you know, uh, toothpaste or you're out of detergent and you want it fast you're going to go to the marketplace because it's quick and it's easy. But for the stuff that you want, like I'm just, I mean, you can see me now. I'm not sure our, the, the listeners will be able to see us, but you know, I'm wearing a blue salt hoodie, my favorite hoodies made in California and Soul Angeles pants right now. These products are never going to be sold on a marketplace. Why? Because when you talk to the founders of these brands, they want to have a direct relationship with them. And so I think more and more consumers are voting with their wallets to not only support independent businesses, but they're choosing and they prefer to buy from independent businesses. Now, why did they not do it before? Well, besides the issue of discovery, one-click checkout for a long time was only available on one or two marketplaces. (laughs) It's now available everywhere. Affordable two-day shipping was only available in one or two places. It's now available pretty much for anyone selling on Shopify. So more and more, it is becoming more convenient or just as convenient for a consumer to buy direct. And when their favorite products are not available on those marketplaces, you know, uh, we're talking about Allbirds a couple times, but go search for Allbirds in some of these big marketplaces. You're going to see knockoff Allbirds. I don't want to buy knockoff Allbirds. I want to support Tim and Joey, and I want, it, I want to vote with my wallet for more of those products to exist in the world. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I'll talk to Harley about how he thinks about content moderation on a shopping platform. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try. Explore. Connect. Pivot. Transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com US slash innovate. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're back with Harley Finkelstein, president of Shopify. I have to ask every sort of platform executive about content moderation. Shopify obviously has a, a content policy. Trump's store was taken down around the time of the insurrection. You've mentioned Jeffree Star a couple times. That's somebody who's often involved in uh, controversies, all, all YouTubers and influencers are. What are the lines for you? How does that work? 
Well, the reason we have this accessible use policy is so that we have very clear lines. Um, so, you know, obviously we firmly stand against anything relating to hate or violence. Uh, but we think that, you know, platform moderation is actually a critical part of, of, of any, you know, like growing company and, and certainly, you know, part of the digital landscape. So we have this team, they're called Trust and Safety, and the entire team is dedicated to ensuring that our merchants follow the AUP, the accessible use policy, and we don't hesitate to enforce that. So for example, um, the last year, we've removed products and stores related to Pride Boys and Boogaloo and QAnon and, and anyone else violating Shopify's accessible use policy. But the idea is to actually create a framework to say, if it breaches this, it's gone. Now you can say, well, what about, you know, what about the law? Can you, can you just rely on the law. Unfortunately, the problem is the law doesn't operate at the same rate of change and pace as the internet does. So for example, for a while, ghost guns were, were technically legal. A 3D printed gun uh, was technically legal, but we did not believe that was acceptable on our platform. And so we were very clear that that is not acceptable. And anytime we saw that, we were able to kick them off. And so by creating this AUP, we think that it's not perfect and there's still room to, to improve on that. But the AUP at least gives some framework to say, this crosses the line and this does not. And then we kick them off. One of the most interesting things about this conversation with you in particular is that it's not a free speech conversation. It's not a Section 230 conversation. Like, you're not running a social media platform. You're running a commerce platform. There are actually different rules and a different entire set of lawsuits happening around what online merchants can and cannot sell and what they're responsible for. How big is your trust and safety team, and how much does it run into the trust and safety problems that uh, a social media platform might have. It seems like you need a big one that's pointed in a different direction. Uh, our, our team is big enough that they can like, it, it's it's sufficiently staffed that they can do what they want. But also a lot of it is, is, is based on machine learning and AI, whereby we know certain keywords or meta tags contravene the AUP and they're gone. In some cases, you get to a point where you actually have to really think about it. I mean, you know, you mentioned uh, the Trump store. I mean, the Trump store was taken off the platform when that trust and, trust, trust and safety team believed that he was inciting violence in the Capitol. And that was that countervened uh, and, and went against the AUP policy. So the team will keep growing. But actually, over time, the algorithms get smarter saying this is a store that's flagged. We can take a look at it. We can say, yes, this is appropriate or it's not appropriate. And if it's not, we kick them off the platform. That's not to say that store is not going to exist elsewhere. We just don't want it on Shopify. So this comes back to the kind of the theme of this whole conversation is the power of different platforms expressed in different ways. Shopify is a, a big platform. That's a lot of power to have over the economy, over entrepreneurship. What is the sort of, what is the philosophical conversation around writing and rewriting that acceptable use policy? Are these products that we believe should exist in the world that we think consumers want in the world that we are proud to say are powered by Shopify. And um, again, that's the reason why we don't want to be random. Is it proud? You know, again, I, it is a different kind of conversation than I have with the, the the social media companies. The social media companies are not out there saying, I'm proud of this tweet, but you're saying we want to be proud of the products. Yeah, you can use a bunch of different terms for it. If, if, if it incites violence, it's off. If it's illegal in the jurisdiction, it's off. If it, car if it causes harm, like a ghost gun, it's off. So it's not necessarily just a pride or personal pride about it. It's like, this is a framework. You don't have to agree with it, but this is the framework we've decided of acceptable stores on the platform. And if you don't like that, you can go to another platform. In fact, some people that get kicked off go to other platforms. But also, it's not just about what they're selling. You know, 
copyright infringement are allowed on other on other platforms. If we see a store that is infringing on any type of intellectual property, either on a trademark or a copyright or anything of that nature, it's gone. We, we don't allow it. We, we notify the merchant and say, here's the reason why we're taking these steps. And we give them a chance to explain or provide us proof that they actually do on the IP. But they can go elsewhere. It's just on Shopify. These are the stores that are permitted. Does this take up as much of your time, company, brain space as it does for social media platform companies, where it seems like it's the controversy they live in, that's the choice they've made in their lives? I'm not sure. I, I don't know how many hours they spend in it. I think this is, a, this is an important topic. I don't think this is something to take lightly, and I think the responsibility of the platform is to take this seriously. But I think the right way to do it is to create a set of, of, of parameters that says this is okay and this is not. So this way, when an issue comes to you, you're not immediately reacting to it on your heels, but rather you say, this is the framework. Put it through the framework. And, and more times than not, the framework, the framework works. Now, sometimes we may miss something, and we'll get better at, at, at missing less and less over time. But the AUP, we think, is the best way for us to have a really good litmus test of what is acceptable and what is not. I ask all the executives who come on the show about decision-making frameworks. You started at Shopify. You were actually a seller using some of Shopify software once upon a time. Now you're the president. This market has exploded. The company is now a public company. How has your decision-making framework changed? And how do you make some of the monumental decisions Shopify has to make about where and when it will compete? Well, first of all, to your point, uh, so my introduction to Shopify was uh, I was one of the first merchants on the platform. I was in law school and I needed to make some money. And my business that I had in college was able to, it was a, it was a t-shirt business, but it was more sort of wholesale. Uh, we so, I sold t-shirts to universities, like promotional t-shirts for, for different, you know, frosh week and, and, and bookstore apparel and stuff. That worked great in college where you didn't have to, sh- you didn't have to show up to class, you just show up for the exam. But in law school, as, as I assume it was the same case for you, they actually took attendance in law school. And so I couldn't, I couldn't run this B2B business. Uh, I had the really great fortune of meeting Toby uh, when I moved to Ottawa to go to law school. Uh, he was, he's the founder of Shopify. And and so I, I met him and I said, look, I want to start a T-shirt business, direct to consumer, totally virtual. I needed to run concurrently while I'm in class. And he's, you know, he told me about Shopify. And so I became one of the first merchants. I've been at Shopify now for about a third of my life, uh, just about 12 years. And so at any, in the early days of any company, you know, you, you, I think most early, early uh, employees, you kind of play the role of a bit of a Swiss army knife. Because you're just, you're ingesting so much information. There's so much to do. I don't think you have the freedom, at least I didn't have the sophistication to really think about decision-making frameworks. I, I'd really, it was like, it was like drinking from a fire hose and you just had to react as quickly as possible. Today, you know, as we see here in 2021, when I'm sort of given a decision, the nice part of Shopify is we can test almost every assumption. We can test it anecdotally because we can have a set of merchants that we say, hey, look, we're thinking of doing this thing called Shopify Capital. We think that capital would be something would be very useful. We think you can use it for inventory or marketing or what have you. So we're going to we're going to start this 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 program, this alpha called Shopify Capital. And if it works and we hit these metrics, we're going to scale. And if it doesn't, we're going to we're going to we're not going to do that sort of thing, too. I also think that having a company that has a deep sort of growth mindset to use sort of Carol Dweck's term of growth mindset, whereby we're constantly getting really comfortable with being uncomfortable, that has created an environment for those of us that that work at Shopify, whereby we have strong opinions, but they're weakly held. 
So I may come in with this assumption that like, I know exactly how this experiment's gonna go. And I may say so with conviction because I think I've seen it before. But if you got a better idea or you can challenge me with either data or evidence, uh, I'm gonna change my mind fairly quickly. And, and that's worked out really well. Um, and on a personal level, I know a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, other uh, entrepreneurs and, and, and leaders of companies, you know, they use books. And, and, and I, I, books are, are great because I can get an insight into, you know, some brilliant person's mindset and how they think about things. But actually mentorship for me has been far more valuable in terms of growing my own understanding of how to run a company. And when I got married, and this is super weird, but before I got <laughs> married, I, I, I called like the four or five people that I knew I felt had the best relationship with their spouse. And I said, I'd like to talk to you for the next couple of weeks, every couple of days about how to be a great spouse. When I became a father, I called people that I thought were really great fathers and said, and dads and said, hey, you know, what do you do? So mentorship for me has been a really valuable way to scale my own abilities. And, and it's fairly well known that, you know, what got you to where you are is not going to necessarily get you to where you, you know, to the next phase there. It's like the red queen race. Do you know that concept? No, I don't. I think it's an Alice in Wonderland uh, uh, reference, but but effectively, it's like a treadmill. Like in order for you to actually go faster than the treadmill, you actually have to outpace it. So you have to like mm -hmm. if you are going at the same pace as the person next to you in the race, you're actually standing still. Oh, that's really interesting. The reason I ask that is Shopify is growing really fast. You were there at the early days. I, I keep coming back to this theme. You are, are now enabling companies to compete with the giants. You are yourself in some ways competing with the giants. You are in some ways partnered with them. As you have to make decisions there, you're up against a lot of capital, a lot of market power. I am definitely going to ask you about this Apple Epic lawsuit. Sometimes you're just up against other people controlling the interface and just saying what you can and can't do. How do you use that, your kind of overall framework to make a decision like we're not going to have the shop app become a, uh, an actual marketplace for customers. Yeah, that's actually an easier answer because when you're specific about that, you ask yourself, what is best for the merchant? Forget everything else. What is best for the merchant? You know, during COVID, when COVID first hit, it hit hard in Canada around mid-March. Um, we extended our trial from 14 days to 90 days. That's a big change. I mean, that, that, I mean that, that, there's a real cost to moving a trial from 14 days to nine, 90 days, like, like nine zero. But that was the right thing to do, even if it wasn't the easy thing to do, because it meant that more people than may have been on the fence about whether or not to digitalize their brick and mortar store or to commercialize their hobby or to enter the entrepreneurship ring were able to do so with less, with less risk, with less cost. That's an easy decision because you say, what is best for the merchant there? The other thing is we use a lens around Shopify, which is the idea of like, we want to build a hundred year company and we're about 15 years in. So we got like 85 years left to go. When you use a long-term horizon uh, of a hundred year company, you tend to not necessarily focus on short-term you know, metrics or uh, short-term results. You're able to actually think a lot longer about what you're trying to do here. And ultimately, just to be clear, what we're trying to do here is we want to be the world's entrepreneurship company. There is a company that owns Search and it's Google and they've done an amazing job, you know, organizing the world's content and, and information. And there's a company that owns Social and it, for the most part right now, it's Facebook. Um, but no company has yet to really own and make entrepreneurship something that is accessible by everyone. And we think we have the best shot at that. So using that lens, it's a lot easier to make 
decisions for the long run. It also means in some cases that we will do something that maybe in the short run is not great for Shopify, but in the long run is great for the merchant. Or, or in the short run, it's also great for the merchant. In the long run, may eventually be good for Shopify. We can take these long-term bets because we're playing this ridiculously long game of a 100-year company. So let's talk about some of the big competitors directly. Let's start with with Apple. As people listen to this, they they will be in the middle of their their trial with Epic. I'm sure we're all going to be watching it carefully. That trial is specifically about what you are and are not allowed to purchase on an iPhone and give Apple a cut. Specifically, is in app purchases. So in this case, uh, Fortnite emotes and outfits for your character. There is a burgeoning mar- marketplace of digital goods right now, right? There's an NFT conversation happening all around us. I could see how I might want to be an entrepreneur that just sells digital goods. Shopify right now, if they want, if you wanted to enable that for me, you would run face first into Apple's restrictions and face first in the same problems that Fortnite is running into. Have you thought about that kind of market expansion? So we, we, we do have merchants that sell digital goods. I mean, uh, I think Taylor Swift put out her last album on Shopify. Kanye has sold all his last bunch of albums on Shopify digitally, all his merch as well. It's not really about Apple per se, but I think what you're what what it raises for me is that if you're going to be a future-proofed business long term, you need to have your tentacles in a lot of different places. I, I used the term digital town square earlier, but let me let me double click on that. The digital town square of 2021 is not one town square. It's like 15 different town squares. And it may become 30 town squares. And AR or VR may also be a town square that hasn't really come up yet. And the next TikTok might be as well. And Clubhouse, there, I mean, there's no there's no commerce on Clubhouse right now. I suspect at some <laughs> point there will be some form of commerce on Clubhouse. That doesn't mean you as a merchant or you as a brand or you as a gamer, or a game company, should focus on one particular channel. That your app that sits on an iPhone, if you're Epic Games, for example, and you're selling merch or you're selling digital goods, that may be one particular channel. But if you also have Epic Games powered by Shopify, or you're also cross-selling on Instagram, now you have more leverage, but you also have more optionality that if one of those channels doesn't become as lucrative or as um, impactful to your business as it once was, I use the MySpace example, it's still okay because you have all these other channels as well. I hear what you're saying. And I think you are framing Shopify as one solution for entrepreneurs trying to make their way across all these platforms. I want to talk about Shopify, though. You run a business that takes payment very much from people's phones. There are two platform vendors that are very much in control of what happens on people's phones. You as the president of Shopify, how do you perceive the threat to your business or the opportunity for your business as those platform walls expand and contract? I, I don't I don't view that as a as, as a big threat to our business per se. I mean, the fact that we all like I use an iPhone uh, and the fact that it's someone else's platform, I believe that there is a way for you as a merchant to build an app, for example, on Apple. Uh, let's say it's a let's say you're a clothing company and you build a workout app that you can still make money even though you are on someone else's platform. I actually think this idea that platforms, I, I, I appreciate the walled garden kind of scenario that you're painting, but I actually think there are other ways to do it. If you can no longer as a merchant make money on one of these platforms or one of these pieces of hardware or Shopify merchants have more difficulty now selling in-app purchases on the iPhone, I think entrepreneurs at their core are resilient and they're going to find other ways to monetize outside of those walled gardens. 
the reason that I, I come to this with a maybe more optimistic answer than, than what you expected is that I've seen the resilience of entrepreneurs. And when one channel closes or one piece of hardware platform closes, they find another one. And I think that's how it's going to continue. Now, that being said, I do think some of the restrictions on things like ads for small businesses that some of the platforms are discussing are going to be in the short term, not necessarily. It's, it's going to make it more difficult. But I think in the long run, what it's going to do is it's going to force more of these brands to be a lot more more wider reaching in how they acquire customers, how they build their business, because they realize now that that is not going to be good enough. And so now I'm like, all right, I'm going to experiment with TikTok ads, or I'm going to find some influencers. But I think the resilience is actually what I guess gives me hope that it's not going to be, uh, it's not going to create a mass problem for all entrepreneurs and all small businesses. It's going to force them to be more creative and find new channels. But let me paint the most pessimistic version of that that picture. And, I, and this is an argument I've, I've heard from a few places, in particular from Facebook. Apple is going to do ad tracking transparency on the iPhone. It's all rolled out. I have said no to every request to track me across multiple apps. That means Facebook's first-party data is going to get more and more valuable. And so they're going to want to keep you in that app more often. They're already doing stuff in that direction. They're saying, here's a podcast player. Here's a set of creator tools. We're just going to hold you inside of this app so the ads are valuable here. And then their next move, right, and I know they're currently partnered with you, is to have people transact more often in that app because they can't track you as effectively elsewhere. Uh, off that app, yeah. Off the app or off off Facebook apps. They can certainly track you across this set of apps that they own. Doesn't that just, as Facebook wants to grow, and I'll pick on Facebook, but it could be any of the companies that are doing this kind of marketing, TikTok. As they grow, they're going to just try to take more and more volume down into Shopify's part of the stack. Right. And so you can use shop pay here, but we're Facebook. We can just subsidize a better deal, a lower, a lower cut of the transaction fee. And that to me is where, right, you see Apple made this move ostensibly to protect their users. They, they seem very ideological about it. But in some other way, they've actually just bolstered Facebook's position and Facebook's desire to hold people in their app and eventually transact in the app in a way that might cut directly at your business. And you had nothing to do with it. Well, I, I don't think in 2021 anyone is setting up a single channel <laughs> commerce. I mean, yeah. I'm serious. It's, it's it's like the data backs it up. No one really has a single channel indefinitely in 2021. You immediately want to have multi-channel right away. It's the reason why, like, even the idea of omni-channel now sounds like this. It's like calling it a color TV. You don't call it a color TV. It's just <laughs> it's just commerce. It's just commerce should be everywhere. But in terms of the ad, the ads in specific, because I, I want to address this. So near term, some of the changes, uh, the Apple changes, will reduce the efficacy of some ads. But it will further incentivize merchants to try other ways to connect with buyers on top of ads getting increasingly expensive. So longer term, merchants may actually benefit from further embedding commerce into every surface, like like from retargeting to using shop to using some random, uh, you know, social media platform in some particular niche. That is why I'm optimistic, because I don't think that when that happens, entrepreneurs are going to shut the, they're going to close their windows and their doors and say, we're out of business now. I think they're going to say, okay, where are we going to able to find new consumers? And when one of those opportunities close, Clubhouse or TikTok or someone's going to say, great, we now can help you with that. And I think that is a better way to think about what is happening in retail, you know, but not talking about the tech wars per se, but in retail. Yeah, I, I think my question there is if your highest converting marketing channel changes its terms in some way and you suddenly have to go find another marketing channel. Yeah, I'm, entrepreneurs are very creative. That's why I have a show where I mostly talk to entrepreneurs. I like I like that. But that is a very disruptive and often devastating change for some people when your 
when your marketing spend suddenly goes very high. Uh, before the pandemic, one of the stories that I thought was most interesting was that direct-to-consumer brands across the industry were finding their digital marketing spends skyrocketing so fast that it was more cost-effective to open stores in New York City, Yeah, which was completely upside down. There was an arbitrage opportunity on physical retail in like Soho. Yeah, which is crazy to me. Like it's, it used to be the most expensive real estate in the world, and it was cheaper than acquiring customers on Facebook, which is nuts, right? Like I would try to explain this to people and, and people wouldn't believe me. And now, you know, the pandemic has happened. I don't know that there's quite as much of that opportunity in Soho anymore, but it feels like that dominance is even more solidified. And as the platforms do get into these wars, that the the collateral damage for the entrepreneur trying to build a business is really just a tax on like you, A, you have to figure it out instead of operating your business and making better products. And B, your money is definitely not going as far as it used to. Yeah, that, but that assumes that the only way you're able to acquire a customer and get attention is by spending money on it. When I look at Gymshark, do you know Gymshark mm -hmm. company? So billion dollar brand, Ben Francis, pizza delivery guy in the UK, built it in like 2014 uh, in a dorm room. Now it's, you know, I don't know this for sure, but I suspect it's some major sporting goods companies in the board meetings they're talking about Gymshark and the challenge they're bringing. The entirety of that business was built on simply finding amazing personal trainers who don't work out in big gyms, but actually work out in their homes and, and creating relationships with them. And then they become this, this leverage, this force multiplier for attention. They didn't need any money for that. They just needed creativity for that. Or another one is email marketing. For a lot of our merchants, a lot of merchants in general and some of the biggest brands, their email list is the most valuable thing that they use for marketing and they own it. You own your online store and you own your email list. No, you don't rent that from somebody else. And so Again, there are other levers of that, but you know, when one of those marketing channels closes, another one will come up and there's always going to be an early stage arbitrage opportunity before everyone sort of realizes, hey, this is a really good ROI, but those eventually will mature and some of them may close and there'll be another one that comes up. That's where resilience is, is almost more important than any one particular strategic direction. We're going to take one more break. We talked about Apple, we talked about Facebook, and when we come back, we're going to talk about Amazon and how Shopify is creating a network for independent sellers to compete with it. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate 
in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. We're back with Decoder. Let me shift my attention to Amazon a little bit. One of the frames you have for Shopify is you are not competing with Amazon. In fact, Shopify is partnered with Amazon in some ways, but you are creating a network of independent sellers who might then provide real competition to Amazon. I think that's a really interesting frame. But you are partnered with Amazon. You've had, it's almost two years on Shopify fulfillment network. How is that going? It's going great. Uh, and the reason the SFN is so important, actually to bring right back to the, your, your introduction of, of this question was, it's one of those additional pain points that the big companies, the big marketplaces have have had an unfair advantage on. That consumer expectation has been completely reset. Everybody wants affordable two-day shipping. And any individual merchant on Shopify that's just getting started cannot properly do that. But when you aggregate, when you take a lot of tiny little lights and you bring them together, you get the sun. When you aggregate those merchants, you actually start seeing, wow, there's some scale here. And now you can actually offer affordable two-day shipping. So... SFN, we're, we said we, it's about a five-year plan. We're about a year and a half or two years into it now. We think that we can connect third-party logistics warehouses, 3PLs, all over the U.S. using great software to the, to, to the effect that a merchant starting on Shopify after you know, 30 days of sales data, we can say, send your products to our, our, our node in Atlanta or our node in, in Reno, Nevada. And then on your behalf, we will ship out your products in your own brand, with your own branding, in your own boxes, not in some sort of, you know, third-party logistics branded boxes. So the reason that SFN, the filament is important is the same reason the payments product is important, the capital product is important, that these entrepreneurs on their own cannot necessarily compete at the level they need to. But when we aggregate them and we act as the, you know, and we talk about like some companies are building empires, we're arming the rebels. When we arm the rebels, the result of it is that the rebels become the most beloved brands for consumers. And that I think is what's happening. So you're actually building fulfillment centers, shipping, you're, do, you're doing all of that work. We are. So our business model around fulfillment is we, we believe that there are tons of empty warehouses all over the U.S. That's where we're starting right now. Think of, you know, the three PLs that used to supply J. Crew or used to do all the logistics for Forever 21. You have all these buildings all over the U.S. with great people there. In fact, some of them are actually small businesses that, that run these fulfillment warehouses. The problem is none of them are connected. And so what we're trying to do with SFN, with the Film Network, is connect them all. And using software, uh, we also acquired a company uh, out of... Um, uh, called Six River Systems out of Waltham, Mass., which makes robots to make these warehouses more efficient, we think we can actually make it so that 
it feels like you're buying from a really, really big marketplace, even though you're buying from an entrepreneur who's, you know, single mom and, and does runs the business uh, from her kitchen table. But the fulfillment center, is that owned and operated by Shopify or is that no franchise agreement? How does that work? Yeah, it's, it's a partnership. So we, we it's our software. It'll be our, our robots, but it, it, they, they own it. It's their business. We do have one that, that we own ourselves, really. Uh, it's almost like a laboratory. Uh, it's here in Ottawa, uh, so we can do some testing. But those fulfillment centers, those nodes are all third party owned. So what does that deal look like? I happen to own a, a warehouse. Man, I'm getting crushed. I got to call Shopify. Do I just one click order a robot and you, you take it over? How does that work? You own a warehouse. Uh, you have all this capacity. You call Shopify or we call you because you're in a particular region that we really like. And we say, hey, we think you're a perfect candidate to be in the fulfillment network. We go in there. We make sure the quality control is a certain level. We make sure you have all the capacity. And then we start sending you products and you get paid uh, a fee for every product that you store, that you pick, you pack, that you fulfill. You no longer have to do any sales or marketing if you're if you're one of these three pails. Who bears the cost for the robots that end up in the factory? Is that you or is that the warehouse center? Those are all different. Depends on the warehouse. In some cases, they want them anyways because they have other customers, and so they're paying for. It. In other cases, uh, we decide that it's it's such a strategic warehouse that we want to put those in there. And in other cases, it's it's one merchant that has the whole warehouse, and so we have, we will have a deal with the with the merchant itself. One of the things that's really interesting about this is obviously Amazon is is a big competitor here. They own and operate a lot of their own warehouses. They have a lot of different kinds of deals. They have a lot of contractors as delivery drivers with Amazon logos on the vans. It's almost impossible to figure out. But one constant is the people who work in these warehouses, who drive the trucks, are not always in love with working for Amazon. There's a lot of labor unrest at Amazon to enable the amount of volume they do, to enable their shipping speed. There was just a failed union drive in Alabama. There's going to be more. There's Internationally, there's more labor unrest against Amazon. We hear the stories every day. You're trying to enable the same thing at scale, maybe using a different model. Have you thought about the people who actually put the stuff in boxes, drive the trucks, enable the two-day shipping? One of the things that's so cool about the Fulfillment Network is that, um, I kind of hinted this, but let me just say it bluntly, a lot of these fulfillment warehouses are actually owned and operated by small businesses in our case. They're like, they're in some town. It's a family run business. They've been in the family for like two generations. They've been doing some sort of fulfillment. And so we actually get to know these folks and, and it, it's working out really well. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I don't think you have to have a tense relationship with the people fulfilling these orders in order to have affordable two day shipping. You can, you can, you can do good and fulfill things in a timely manner at an affordable price. The two are not mutually exclusive. Um, now, again, the other difference is that we, you know, we care first and foremost about merchants and other companies. They care sometimes about the end consumer. And so merchants are sort of this annoyance in the middle. Um, but, but our entire mandate, all we, you know, we, we're, we care about these merchants here. But to your point, I don't think you need to necessarily um, be ruthless with the people that are doing this fulfillment in order to have great fulfillment. How do you maintain the, the cost curve, though? Because now you've got a lot of different vendors sort of in the, every part of your stack, right? You've got merchants on one side who are selling things to consumers. You're in the middle. You've got a whole network of uh, logistics operators that the merchants are coming through. How do you keep that all consistent without that level of ruthlessness? Because consistency at that scale tends to require pressure. Yeah, but efficiency and ruthlessness are, are you know, you, you, you don't have to be ruthless to be efficient or to be effective. First of all, consumers, believe it or not, are happy to pay for great shipping. They're happy to pay for good products. So first, I think the consumer is certainly happy to pay for, for you know, for, for two-day shipping. I don't think you have to go beyond two-day shipping. I don't think anyone needs something within an hour. If you do, you can use something like Instacart or some of these, you know, uh, something like that. Now, 
speaking specifically about the film and warehouses, again, a lot of these warehouses have been decimated. They had this huge customer like American Eagle or something or, or Forever 21 or something, and now those warehouses are empty. One of the reasons that we also wanted to acquire Six River Systems, which is, uh, which is again, this robotics company, is one of the things it does do is it doesn't replace humans in the warehouse. It just makes the humans in the warehouse far more efficient. So in some cases, you're actually able to get really great cost efficiencies and reduce the cost because now you're not running around the warehouse in some random sort of pattern, but you actually know exactly where to go, how to go, and, and, and what's going to be the most efficient route. I want to take just a step back and end on a very much more expansive question. One of the dreams of the internet is that you could do the thing you're describing. You'd hang a shingle, you got a snowboard shop, people are going to find you. Now you're running the best online snowboard shop. Off you go. A thing I've noticed from a lot of entrepreneurs I talk to on the show, people who started companies are, they quickly realized that the software it took to build that early business was much more lucrative than the business itself. And I'm wondering if you see that turn for the generation of businesses that's coming up on Shopify, where they they have more tools, they can streamline the operation of their business, they can start quickly, but there's some looming problem where actually being first to building the software to solve that problem is more lucrative than the businesses that can run now. That's a good question. Um, I sort of think about like some of the big merchants on Shopify that are sort of homegrown stories, uh, Fashion Nova, for example, um, or Jeffree Star Cosmetics. A lot of them have had to create, you know, they've created custom apps on Shopify. They'll take the Shopify API and they'll build something that's really, you know, unique for their business. In some cases, they actually do publish those apps in the Shopify App Store to allow enable other merchants to use it as well. Um, that's one of the cool parts of having an, an ecosystem. I mentioned on the earnings call that you know last year Shopify made about three billion dollars uh, in in 2020, but our our partners uh, made about four times that, about twelve billion dollars. We have this massive app ecosystem, a massive referral program. So in sometimes they do that, but for the most part, I haven't seen too much of of a merchant building this great business and then realizing some tool they made. Like I, you know, it's like the Slack story, right? Obviously, uh, Stuart, another great Canadian entrepreneur, he wants to build a gaming company as part of that. Ended up building Slack. I haven't seen too much of that. What I have seen though is, is extension. So you start with just making shoes, and now you're making like luggage, or you start by just making you know one lipstick. In Kylie's case, Kylie Cosmetics, and now you have an entire range of cosmetics that rivals like you know L'Oreal. That vertical expansion tends to happen a lot more than, hey, there's a tool we built to run the business, and now that tool is more valuable than the business itself. Do you think that era of kind of internet companies is over then? That's, that's kind of where I'm headed is, have we reached that maturation point where there are great core tools to build businesses, and you don't need to reinvent Slack because you can just use Slack? I think there's a lot of great tools right now available. Like it's kind of shocking. And that if the tool that you want is not available, I think the amount of like the technical literacy of most entrepreneurs and founders in 2021 is so high and such that that they'll just grab the like you don't have to be an engineer to read a bunch of API docs and figure out, oh, I can connect my ERP system to my shipping system <laughs> just like this. You don't necessarily like, you know, you can just go to one of these connectors. Remember if this then that. Um, yeah. You have all these sort of connection tools where you as a non-engineer, you know, to ex-lawyers like you and I uh, are two entrepreneurs, we can just kind of go and figure it out on our own. I think it actually is getting much easier. To answer your question directly though, I, I do think the tools right now are so good that pretty much you can build almost whatever you need. And if you can, there's open source that's available. If you can't, you can go hire an engineer to come in. You can hire a developer. You can go to Fiverr to get something built for you pretty quickly. <laughs> it's actually, in many ways, like it's the best time to be an entrepreneur, like maybe ever. 
I'm a child of, of immigrants. And, and, you know, when my family came from Eastern Europe to Canada in 56, they became entrepreneurs because they had no choice. In fact, the reason I think I went to law school was because my parents wanted like a better life for me, quote unquote, than they had for themselves. And they were like, entrepreneur is what you do when you can't do anything else. And actually now I realize that they were, they're wrong about that, that their reason for being an entrepreneur or small business was to put food on the table, survival. But for many of us, it's really to self-actualize, that we want to do something. We want our personal passions and our professional passions to meet up. We don't want work-life balance. We want to sort of live this incredible life where we share our gifts with the world. And if you make great soup, you should start a soup store uh, and not necessarily work at some job that you hate. How many sh- soup stores are there on Shopify? That's a real tongue twister. Yeah, pr- I don't know. Probably a lot. I mean, 1.7 million stores. You can pretty much pick any category, and there's like thousands of stores in that category. Um, but uh, I just, uh, yeah, I, I the, randomly someone showed me a, a store that makes uh, hats for cats on Shopify that does really, really well. I'm doing the the fact check after this, and we're going to find out if there's any soup stores on, on Shopify. One other thing that might be interesting uh, for you just relative to sort of COVID and stuff is that how many stores, like how many restaurants now have stores with either meal kits or cookbooks. It's quite amazing to see how many service-based businesses through the pandemic having to close their doors, changed and pivoted their business to sell a physical product. And, and uh, I, some of my favorite restaurants are now like, you know, the French Laundry is on Shopify. It's so crazy. The next turn for me, we're out of time, but I would say the next turn of that for me is that is so still dependent on the open web existing. And that's to me... We've talked about threats to this kind of digital merchant class over and over again. That to me is the threat, especially as more of this happens on the phone. However, you've given me too much time already, so I'm going to end how I always end. What is next for Shopify? What should people be looking for? I still think entrepreneurship is is, is not accessible enough. If you look at our 1.7 million merchants, most of them are in English speaking the English speaking world. They're in sort of our core geographies. I think there is so much opportunity for us to help people put food on their table, uh, or whatever their unique individual version of success might be, make a million dollars, take a company public, feed their family, put their kids through you know ballet lessons, whatever that is for them, I think entrepreneurship is still inaccessible to many. I, you know, I would really like, you know, Andy Warhol has that famous quote that in the future, I think everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. I I would love in the future for everyone to try their hand in entrepreneurship. You know, I'll give credit to Nike. Nike did this amazing thing where they convinced the world that if you have a body, physical body, you are an athlete. And therefore, they made their product accessible to everybody. I, I, we would like to convince anyone that has ambition that they can probably, they, they could be an entrepreneur and they could probably be successful at that. That's the future for Shopify. Can we turn the whole world into entrepreneurs? Well, that's great. Well, Harley, thank you so much for being on, on Decoder today. Thank you. Thank you again to Harley Finkelstein for taking the time to talk today, and thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you're interested in the epic Apple trial, I host another show called The Vergecast. We'll be breaking down that entire trial for the next three weeks as it's ongoing. Look for The Vergecast wherever you subscribe your podcasts as well. Decoder is a production of The Verge, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Sophie Erickson, Alexander Charles Adams, Liam James, and Andrew Marino. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you next week.